From Chile to Catalonia, Lebanon to Hong Kong, it seems like we're seeing protests erupt everywhere. But one region seems to have been hit harder than others by this massive wave of disgruntlement, Latin America. We have seen violent confrontations in Chile and Ecuador, polarized elections in Bolivia and Argentina. In Peru, the president and Congress are at war, which we covered in a previous episode. In Brazil and Mexico, stagnant economies are posing a risk for the near future. Rampant violence has plagued Central America. And of course, Venezuela remains mired in chaos. It seems that Latin America's veins are as wide open as they've ever been. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. Elon Marshall, hello. Hi, Gustavo. Okay, so can you tell us what is going on in Latin America? Um, well, how long have we got? <laughs> we try to keep it around 20 minutes, so let's test your ability to be concise. Well, let's. we can start with Chile, which is making all the headlines right now. Uh, the government has recently increased their public transport fares, which led to a series of protests with more than 1 million people taking to the streets. That's pretty impressive, especially when you consider that Chile's entire population is only 19 million. What are they so angry about? I mean, it can't just be the bus ticket prices. Well, yeah, no, it's not, because the, the government actually very quickly backpedaled on these transport fares, seeing the size of these protests. And the president, Sebastián Piñera, he's already fired eight members of his cabinet. Respuestas verdaderas, urgentes y responsables a esas but people still continue to protest, uh, which suggests that there's a much deeper problem going on there in Chile. Um, depending on the way you measure it, Chile can be classed as one of the most unequal countries in the world. You have student debt, which is through the roof, and the pension system, which was introduced decades ago under the military dictatorship of General Pinochet, it's left senior citizens struggling to survive on less than the minimum wage. And in this case, that little hike to the bus prices, that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. And how have these protests unfolded? Well, there have been some violent clashes between protesters and law enforcement, and we have a shocking total of 20 people having died so far at the time of recording. Uh, so, you know, the protests have been very heated, but also full of a lot of powerful symbolism with flags and slogans and music. Music? Yeah, that's right, because Chileans want these sweeping reforms in the country, and that would undo an economic order which was established during the aforementioned Pinochet dictatorship. And in these protests, what they've done is they have revived the memory of an important political prisoner of that time, who is the folk singer Victor Jara, and his protest song El Derecho de Vivir en Paz, which is the, the right to live in peace, it's became something of an anthem for these demonstrations, and you know it's made its way to the top of the Spotify charts in Chile. And what is this song about? 
Uh, well, originally, the, the lyrics condemn the American invasion of Vietnam, and there's there's references to Ho Chi Minh, uh, but its, its symbolism in Chile is much bigger than that. Uh, Victor Jara was arrested by the military regime in 1973, and he was taken to a torture center. And the story goes that his tormentors at the time crushed his hands and fingers, and, and then they forced him to try and play the guitar. Uh, the legend also has it that he was chanting his political songs while he was being tortured and that he was only silenced when he was killed. Jesus. So, okay, moving on to other Latin American countries where things are much less musical, can we do a roundup in, like, a couple of minutes we can certainly try so starting with Bolivia what's up there yeah so a few years back the left-wing president Evo Morales passed a new constitution which limited the amount of consecutive terms a head of state can serve but then he himself filed a lawsuit saying that that limitation would be a, a violation of his human rights and he won this month's election and he was handed a fourth term in what was a highly contested election uh, the opposition hasn't accepted the defeat, and you've got thousands of people protesting who are demanding a recount. Argentina just also had an election this weekend. Yes, uh, but the circumstances are a bit different in Argentina. Even though the, the race was definitely polarized, but it was nowhere near as, as controversial as that, like getting the, the law involved. So the incumbent Mauricio Macri lost out to the Kirchner's candidate Alberto Fernandez, which marks the return of the left to Argentina amid a deep economic crisis. Because you've got inflation at 54%, the Argentinian peso has sunk in recent years, and also the left's victory wasn't quite the landslide that the initial polls were suggesting. So that means that the new administration is not going to have much room for error, and if President-elect Fernandez does fail, Macri's group will be lurking behind in the shadows, waiting to pounce. By the way, uh, episode 69 was about how the Argentinian race affects Brazil. But moving on. Okay, so in Honduras, we have people calling for the ousting of their president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, whose brother was found guilty of, quote, state-sponsored drug trafficking by an American court. In Haiti, people have also called for the removal of their president, Jovenel Moise, due to corruption scandals. And Haiti is basically ground to a halt and is already the poorest country of the continent, so you can imagine what's going on there. In Ecuador, we had citizens staging violent protests after the government followed a recommendation from the International Monetary Fund and rolled back fuel subsidies and in Uruguay, the usually peaceful Uruguay, the progressive coalition that has been in power since 2005 is set to lose the upcoming runoff election as crime is on the rise and the economy is showing signs of strains. So what is fascinating about all this is that we're seeing administrations both from the left and the right on the ropes. Yeah, so this dissatisfaction is more of a general phenomenon. Uh, opinion polls have showed how much Latin Americans are loathing politicians right now because you've got trust levels and in institutions are really low and about 80% of people think that parties aren't governing with the public interest in mind. 
So in many ways, what we're seeing now in our neighboring countries kind of mirrors what Brazil underwent in 2013, doesn't it? I mean, after a bump in bus tickets, uh, we had a massive wave of protests across the country against pretty much everything from corruption to the hosting of the 2014 World Cup to the quality in schools. I mean, you name it. Yeah, and in a way, that protest movement culminated in the election of Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, as simplistic as he may sound to political observers, he was able to capitalize on the left's mistakes and he became the embodiment of the anti-politics vote, uh, which was a desire to smash the political establishment. And for Brazil, how will this turmoil across South America play out? Well, many of Brazil's problems do require cooperation from other countries. For example, we need neighbors to find solutions to fight drugs and arms trafficking on the border. And, of course, there are also environmental issues. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that we're seeing a growing lack of dialogue between different players. We've got Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, questioning the elections in Bolivia and Argentina. And he's threatened to quit Mercosur, which is the South American free trade bloc. You know, it just looks like things are going to get a bit worse before they get any better. After the break, what is the common denominator in all the crisis across Latin America? Laura Kiran, co-founder of the Brazilian Report. I'm just dropping by to tell you that it has become much easier to subscribe to the Brazilian Report. You no longer need a PayPal account. Now, you only need a credit card to subscribe to the best content about Brazil in English. And don't forget that we still have our 7-day free trial system with absolutely no strings attached. We only ask you for your payment information once you commit to a subscription. But we are confident that you will want to stick with us. Support independent journalism at brazilian.report slash subscribe. The Brazilian Report, no ads, no clickbait, just smart contextualized takes on what is going on in Brazil. André Pagliarini is a visiting assistant professor at Brown University and holds a PhD in Brazilian history. We asked him to help wrap our heads around what is going on in Latin America. Paraphrasing Ana Karenina, we could say that all happy countries are alike, but each unhappy country is unhappy in its own way. But professor, what is the common thread to these outbreaks in so many countries in Latin America at the same time? All of these countries have their own history, their own particular issues that they're dealing with, their own specific aspects. But I do think it is possible to talk about certain commonalities that they share. Perhaps the most important to under understanding the current um, outbreaks is this. Extreme levels of social and economic inequality combined with an irresponsive political class. That is the perception that politicians uh, and various government institutions 
are more concerned with their own perpetuation and their own privileges than they are with addressing the needs of the vast majority of the population. Um, this is an explosive combination, um, and it's one that we've seen um, in Chile, in Ecuador, uh, in 2013, in Brazil. This idea, this, this deep sense that for many, many years, the political elites of the country care more about their own narrow interests than the vast majority of the people. And this is a very broad grievance. It's a very broad complaint. And I think exactly for that reason, it galvanizes and it unites so many people, sending them into the streets. Chile is often used as a role model of how a country should be run. And for many years, it has posted the best human development index numbers. But is there more than meets the eye? Chile is often talked about as a success story in Latin America. And the narrative is that um, it took a number of difficult decisions in the 1970s, decisions that were unpopular at the time, but that this put the country on a path to economic stability and economic growth that it continues to enjoy today. For people who follow the region closely, who look at Chile, who look at the, the inequality in the region, though, there has always been more than meets the eye to the story for several reasons. For one, for example, the richest 1% in Chile concentrate about 24% of the entire country's GDP. Um, so it's an intensely unequal um, society with great disparities between the wealthiest and the poorest, by some rates even more unequal than Brazil, which is often talked about as an extreme case of inequality in, in, in the world. Um, another one of those reforms implemented um, under the military regime of Augusto Pinochet was a drastically reduced pension system for the elderly, such that Chile has one of the highest rates of elderly suicide in Latin America. So beneath the surface of the economic prosperity that these reforms ushered in is a much more complex picture of what the society has chosen to prioritize. And it's not, for example, a substantive uh, retirement for the elderly. Um, and so I think one of the things we're seeing now is all of this discontent coming to the surface, that despite the appearance of a well-ordered economy, people themselves, the vast majority of the population, does not feel they're benefiting from this positive story. The 2000s were arguably Latin America's best economic moment, driven by the once-in-a-lifetime commodities boom. And not coincidentally, we saw a reduction in poverty levels across the region by about 60%. In Brazil, 50%. Uh, access to public services improved, and that raised people's expectations. Many analysts see that raising the bar as the spark for Brazil's 2013 protests. Can you comment on those transformations? For about a decade, from 2000 until about 2010, Brazil in particular um, benefited tremendously from a positive cycle of commodity exports, which workers' party governments, I think, wisely used to reinvest in their own people um, by financing, for example, uh, government programs to reduce inequality, by loosening credit so that ordinary people could buy new consumer electronics, could finance a mortgage, uh, could maybe send their kids to, some cases, better private schools, all of these ways in which the government reinvested in the vast majority of its people, um, but with a model that remained somewhat dependent on those commodity exports. 
Um, and so this did a few things. One, it conditioned uh, Brazil's economic rise to the demand uh, on the global market for, for commodities like soy and, and meat uh, and things like that. But it also raised expectations of the vast majority of people in the country who um, came to demand and expect more from the country's economy and from its political leaders, such that in 2013, when people took to the streets and explosive uh, protests, the political class was taken uh, by surprise uh, with different analyses and different readings of what was going on. Many years later, President Lula looked back on this uh, and said, well, we gave people the bread and now they're in the streets demanding the butter. In other words, his argument was that people had gotten a taste of a better standard of living and they wanted more. They were demanding more uh, and that the political class was failing to deliver that. Um, I think there are various different p potential readings uh, of what happened in 2013, but this, I think, is undoubtedly a central component of it, of unmet potential that people recognized and demanded their leaders address. Um, and those leaders came to be seen as part of an insular uh, group more concerned with their own short-term privileges than in addressing this concern, this concern in the long term. But how much did countries of the region fail to profit from that abundant inflow of money to invest in things like infrastructure, education, innovation, etc.? So there is, I think, a legitimate criticism that these governments failed to account for the possibility that the driver of their economic progress might all of a sudden collapse. Uh, and we're seeing various countries try to deal with that. And one uh, response, of course, has been austerity. Um, and that austerity, combined with the perception that the political class is not responding to the demands of its people, has been explosive, both in uh, Brazil, Chile, Ecuador, um, and, and these to, to list the most prominent examples, to say nothing of Venezuela, for example. Um, this idea of austerity and ignoring the demands of the people um, has really been combustible. 2019 Chile. Uh, is it more of a repeat of 2013 Brazil or maybe a cautionary tale of what Brazil should become if the government prioritizes only austerity policies without much concern for poverty reduction? There are very clear similarities between what is happening in Chile today and what happened in Brazil in 2013. Um, both of them, for example, were sparked by a fare hike in the public transportation of major cities. And in the Brazilian case, in Sao Paulo, it was very common in the early days of the protests to see signs saying, it's not 20 cents, it's about 500 years. That is linking the fare hike to a much broader history, larger grievances about political exclusion, uh, about elite insularity. And we saw very, very similar slogans in the Chilean case. Um, now, one of the ways in which one hopes these examples diverge is that in the Brazilian case, looking back now, I think it's very, very clear to see that those protests opened the door to a deeper consideration, a deeper uh, revision of the country's democratic leanings. Um, but President, current President Jair Bolsonaro, I think, in, was empowered. The phenomenon that gave rise to his current standing, um, I think, came out of this moment of real uh, discontent with democracy. That if this is the best democracy can do, maybe we need someone willing 
to reconsider some basic premises about respect for your opponents, about respect for the rule of law, um, about respect for the state itself. So it's not clear what direction the Chilean uh, protests will go. So far, it does not seem that the same dynamic that happened in Brazil of sort of uh, a discourse of patriotism looped in with an attack on the left. I think this is the largest legacy of what happened out of 2013. It does not seem that those same dynamics are playing out in Chile. And I hope that's the case for the Chilean people, that they can avoid that kind of really radical polarization um, around these issues that I think befell Brazil. The International Monetary Fund, the IMF, is sort of a public enemy number one in countries like Argentina or Ecuador. It once was that in Brazil. Uh, why is that? Why do those three letters make so many Latin Americans just cringe? The IMF, I think, is a stand-in in the understanding of many, many people in Latin America for the international economic system. So even if people don't always understand exactly what the IMF is or what it does, they understand, because of a long, long historical experience, what it feels like to have external economic powers making demands and imposing a particular model on your government. Um, and this plays into that, the, that feeling of an insular political class that is not responding to the people, the vast majority of its own people, and is rather responding to the demands of uh, powerful international economic forces. So the IMF, I think, represents uh, for many people this historical uh, dynamic of foreign interference. Um, of elites who are responsive to international demands rather than addressing the short-term and long-term needs of its own people. So, for example, when we see the IMF demand that uh, a government undo a subsidy for fuel that lower-income people depend on, this is perhaps the clearest example of international demands being totally out of line with what people in Latin America need expect and demand. So uh, because of the history of the region, a history of, of nationalism and a history of rejection of international demands uh, in many cases, that, that those dynamics can be, can be uh, explosive. And I think that's one of the things that, that, that has driven um, part of this protest is that the political class does not respond to its own people. It responds to the supposed international market. And the IMF is one of the, the, the faces, as it were, of these impersonal forces. This episode was written and produced by me, Gustavo Ribeiro. Ewan Marshall edits the final script. If you like our show, remember that the best way to support this podcast is by subscribing to The Brazilian Report. You can enjoy a 7-day, no-strings-attached free trial before committing to a subscription. You only need to add your credit card number after you decide to subscribe, but we're pretty confident you will. Go to brazilian.report slash subscribe. That's all for now. See you next week. <laughs>